Welcome to the Mind Body Business Podcast. Have you ever considered your superpower? If you had one gift to leave with humanity, what would that be? We believe that everyone possesses a superpower. This is your value proposition, your je ne sais quoi to help make a tangible difference in the world. Each week, our show explores these superpowers with tantalizing thought seeds germinating only from the power of collective thought. We invite you to join us for one hour each week and listen in as we dispense superpower knowledge from great people doing greater things. Hey, good afternoon. Welcome to Mind Body Business. On today's podcast, we have a, a really fantastic, all of our guests are fantastic. We say that every week, but um, as a student of psychology, as I often like to throw around to sound important and impressive. You never do, but. <laughs> we have a clinical psychologist from the University of Nevada, uh, Dr. Stephen Hayes, coming on. His, his work primarily focuses on the analysis of the nature of the human language the cognition around it, which we're going to understand what that big word means in a second, and the application and understanding on a more whole esoteric level of the understanding of human suffering. I didn't copy and paste all of that. I actually understood a few of those words. Um, in other words, let me dumb that down for us laymen here. Sometimes we can't get out of our own way. Mm -hmm. And the stories that we tell ourselves and the nature of which we live based upon those stories sort of prevent us from living our best lives because instead of embracing the pain and the misery and the lessons that we learn through all of that as just that lessons, we tend to try to shy away from them and call them something and label them something. But when we label them, we sort of start becoming too, learning to, or we become, we, we identify with them. It's like mm -hmm. saying, it's like saying I have depression. So therefore I'm going to take some drugs for that. But as soon as you say, I have depression, you start taking drugs for those. You sort of start to identify with the fact that you're a depressed individual and you need those drugs in order mm -hmm. to function, et cetera. And you had a really good example when we were talking about this this morning, but this dude is authored. He's written 44 books. Sink that in for a second, 44 books. And he has published over 600 scientific articles in his in his profession let's, let's consider what kind of books they are too it's yeah not just like an easy peasy novel that he's written like this is knowledge. these aren't crayola drawings <laughs> no i i found something when i was googling him a couple of weeks ago preparing he's listed as the 30th 30th highest most impactful psychologist in the world so whether and i know there's a lot of different rankings for people on the planet i don't have any rankings of any mm -hmm. impact or mm -hmm. highest anything so the mm -hmm. fact that he has that from somebody um the book that caught my attention after i met with him uh, this is probably three months ago he wrote a book called get out of your mind and into your life and I, after reading the book and kind of coming to terms with some of the things it falls in line with a lot of the stuff that we talk about a lot of the guests that we've had on and i really wanted to talk about some of the things in his book, which are mainly that first thing is we sort of become our own worst enemies. Sometimes we can't get out of our own way. And, and because of that, we're unable to live our best lives or, or to the fullest potential that we might be capable of because we just keep telling ourselves these stories over and over and over. And these stories are just projections based upon. Well, it's easy, isn't it? It is easy. To stick ourselves in a rut and to have an excuse and blame other people. So, so I hope he likes that introduction because it's as good as I can do without really diving into it. Hey doctor, how's it going? <laughs> It's going really good. Did I butcher your introduction or was it okay? Yeah, you can correct it. <laughs> that was pretty cool. And I was enjoying just watching uh, the two of you interact. But uh, yeah, no, we do get in our way. And uh, we're kind of set up to do it. I mean, we you're the 
social primates that figured out this language and cognition thing, this symbolic learning thing. And it allows us to do things like talk across how many hundreds or maybe thousands of miles in real time at the at one hand, the other hand, to suffer even when we have everything, you know, people who can have all the the money, the houses, the friends, etc., and feel as though they have nothing. So we're the funny ones, we're the, the odd ones on the planet. And um, how to rein that in and sort of learn to manage this clash between this invention of ours that you and I are doing right now mm-hmm. and uh, what we really want. That's what my work's about. So I find the, I find the paradigm sort of paradoxical because one of the things that you talked about is how humans use their minds to survive and that's how we sort of evolved right it was a survival mechanism but in the same breath that same survival mechanism that we use to survive external external circumstances like pain and hunger or whatever it is famine whatever it is we now take those into our daily lives and they become a liability so yeah. that piece right there really really hit home for me and not to go um anecdotally but you know lisa and i both went through some some divorces many years ago pretty devastating time in our life and it was funny because the first couple of years after my divorce and then i started reflecting on any sort of painful event in my life you sort of start to identify with those and once you identify with those it kind of becomes an unabated roller coaster so I'm fascinated to hear your take on that and how humans evolved into that space and what are some ways that we can, A, become aware of it, self-aware of it, and B, work with that to improve our lives. Well, it's an awesome uh, question. And you look at a person who's been divorced twice. And so I've I've lived a little bit of that part of it. Um, but thanks for also setting up just this issue of, you know, what is it about uh, language and cognition? You know, and you're about to get a rant, so I'm going to try to rein it in. But it, you know, the part of what's shocking about it is it's such a simple little step forward. Because I'm I'm a guy who came out of the animal learning tradition, study what non-human animals do, how they learn, blah blah blah. And what we're doing is is different, but it starts with something so tiny, and I can just show it to you. Like if if you say to a 12-month-old that this is a cup, and then you put it away somewhere, and you say, "Where's the cup?" They'll They'll, they'll try to find it. If that doesn't happen, that kid is not going to develop normal language. And 12-month-old babies, the language-trained chimps don't do it. I mean, there are no non-humans who've ever done that. And if you don't do it, you're not on the road to language. And you can sort of put it, make it simple. You learn it in one direction, you drive it in two. And then you put it in networks to change what we do. That's a ditty that su- summarizes 30 years of my life. But the... So that little piece of referential language, of a word having meaning because it's related to and same as, and then learning different and opposite and better and bigger, you know, all those things happen when you're 12, 18, 24 months old, uh, sets us up for wonderful things. We can cooperate. It probably evolved because we could say things like apple and somebody would bring us an apple. You know, we learned this sort of sign symbol relationship thing, same as. And then we learn how to figure out the world with it. If I do this, then I'll get that. That's better than this. I mean, really simple stuff that three-year-olds do. But then you can turn it on yourself. Do you know that three-year-olds commit suicide, but two-year-olds don't? It actually happens. That's how simple it is. 
you know, I, and when I wrote my first uh, book on ACT, the work that I do, I, I had a story in there about a six-month, six-year-old who threw herself in front of a train because her mother had died and she wanted to go be in heaven with her mother. I mean, you think about the most, in terms of survival, I mean, the worst thing you could possibly do. You already six-year-olds are doing it. And then it just keeps going up and going up, you know, but the divorce one, I mean, look what, what happens because of that little simple learn it in one, drive it in two deal. You know, you can think about, for example, what you hope for in that relationship, how it fell apart, how you felt some of those moments of betrayal or disconnection or, uh, you know, infidelity and things that are just stabbed you through the heart. They'll never go away because your brain doesn't have a delete button, doesn't have a, something to, you know, short of brain injury. So the side effect of this initial extension of social cooperation, hey, bring me an apple, thanks, uh, turned into problem solving, turned into science, turned into the conversation we're having right now with science and technology and computers in our pocket and we can walk around and remember every betrayal we've ever had in our life. You know, what do you do with that? Non-human animals don't have to do that. If you're in an aversive situation, you get out of it. How are you going to get out of a divorce? You carry it with you. So it's a challenge. And really the story of human development is mastering that tool and using it to master the world. And now we're at a place where it's so advanced on us that if we're not little baby Buddhas, if we don't bring in modern minds to this modern world, it just overwhelms us. You can see everything that happened over the last few minutes in the world, including horror. Lots of comparison that'll show you that you're not doing as well as others. So constant exposure to pain, judgment, and comparison, those are the toxic triad, and it's uh, overwhelming us and our kids. So we better learn how to put our own minds on a leash, show up, focus on what's important, and get moving, or uh, good luck. Uh, you referenced as you started down that that breakdown, the, the word act, I heard you say, and which is a, a modality of, of your science. And, and I, that stands for accept your reactions to be present. It's an acronym, accept sure. your reactions to be present, choose a valued direction and take action. Now that's not an original seminal thought from you. That's something that has been passed down from someone before you, or is this something that you've developed yourself? Well, the, you know, all of the things that are in all of our psychotherapy traditions, wisdom traditions, et cetera, they're all out there. I mean, if you look, you'll find wisdom teachers, people have had spiritual experiences, transformational moments, but it's all mixed in with lots of stuff that is not helpful. Mm -hmm. Usually there's a woo-woo, there's some sort of things that, you know, or dogma and tradition and things like that might even be actively harmful, all mixed together in this big, you know, chicken gumbo of wisdom and not such good wisdom. What, what science can do and what I've tried to do in my work on acceptance and commitment therapy, which is about accepting, choosing, and taking action, is do the deep dive into language and cognition. And we think we've actually figured that out in ways that can help your kid if they're not learning language, et cetera. We can do a lot of wonderful things with that knowledge. But then having done that, come back to just normal situations like 
how do you deal with a divorce? Be able to focus on the smallest set of processes of things you can do, steps you can take that lead you to prosperity and sort of leave the rest. And science is good at that. It's not just good at, you know, adding things like a baker with a, you know, a thousand recipes in a drawer. It can simplify things. E equals MC squared. We all know it. A gazillion implications simplifies it. And the core of the act model is psychological flexibility. It's the six processes that predict the most things known in all of science. I'm sorry to say it in a prideful way, but it's true. There's about 3,000 studies on it. And uh, if you learn those six processes and can deploy them, and they're all there, they're, you'll recognize them. You'll say, oh, yeah, that one and that one. You'll see resonance. But it allows you to focus and filter, and then that means you can, uh, you know, take advantage of those teachable moments when you need something and you figure something out. You'll have a tool in your back pocket that you can use for another situation. That's the game. I want to go back to the six-year-old who threw herself into the train. So there's a there's a line in your book when people believe their negativity, the suffering compounds. How does a six-year-old a self-aware enough to recognize that it's her negativity that's causing these feelings of distress that's forcing her to run herself into a train? And and what about the context of human nature could be changed early in her life so that she wouldn't have developed those negative feelings and that self-awareness around? My mother died. Well, I wouldn't quite say it that way because the negative feelings in this example are totally appropriate. Her mother died. Negative feelings is that's what you want when your mother dies. You want to be that kind of person, don't you? Mm -hmm. And children have to be educated. They have to grow up to be the, you know, creatures we are. We're so far away from our emotions. We don't even know what we feel. A six-year-old is knowing how she miserable it feels to have her mama be gone. But the point of that story is that the this tools that you need for problem solving, which are nothing more than naming, having features, comparison, and before and after. All you need to be able to solve a problem verbally, and it's by the time you're three years old, you're getting it. That's why the first suicides are happening there. That by the time you're six, it's really starting to go. Is that all you, so you can mentally say, what I've got is this, but I want this. If I do this, I'll get that, and it's better than that. And we teach our children that we have to. Otherwise, we'd have barbarians running around pooping on the floor. You know, we got to teach them when and where things are supposed to be appropriate and all of that. But that six-year-old could say, this is awful. I'll feel better if I were in heaven with mama. And I'll get there when I die. It's very simple stuff. So here's the deal. The point isn't just that there's negativity or that she could have done something different about it. The point is that this natural problem-solving tool that is wonderful has been turned on us, and we've turned our lives from a process to be experienced into a problem to be solved. And once you do that, you're screwed. So it's the problem that has to be solved, which is the which is the nature of the of the problem itself here. Yeah, when you turn on your insides and treat your insides as a problem to be solved, the logical, sensible, reasonable things we do begin to create problems. I'll give you an example. 
anybody feeling something painful would think, what I need to do is do something to get rid of that pain. In the same way that if you had dirt on the floor, you'd say, boy, I need the vacuum. You want that skill, right? But when it's applied inside that way, your feelings are based on your history and your circumstances, and they have an important role. You're feeling sad when your mother dies tells you how much love matters. It tells you how much that person mattered. It allows you to see what you loved about them that you could put into your life. But this organ is so stupid. It will say that your job is to eliminate the sadness even over that. And so you can't learn from things because you're so busy trying to solve them, meaning to subtract, diminish, eliminate, and make go away things that will help and form, uplift, carry you forward. And yeah, they can get excessive, but when you learn how to take what's useful and leave the rest, when you learn those mindfulness skills, you can have painful feelings and not be dominated by them. And, you know, the way you deal with the pain of a divorce, you know, is you learn from it, and then it's just like salty water. You don't try to get the salt crystals out with tweezers. You add fresh water. It's hmm, a good analogy. You, know, you take that, put it into how do I build relationships that really matter, that lift me up, that allow me to be who I am? How do I pick somebody who's going to be loyal and trustworthy? And how can I say, excuse me, please, I'm headed for the exit even faster when I run into somebody who really is going to run over me? Mm. etc. You know, you take the lessons, you pour the fresh water in, and it isn't a matter of eliminating, it's a matter of building. But the mind doesn't understand that. It wants to subtract and eliminate, because that's what you do in the external world, when you have things that are not working. And does it, can I continue? Mm -hmm. And and does yeah. it, does it, does the mind do that naturally? That's the fight or flight sort of simplistic terms for me, right? But let's take the same six-year-old and two different scenarios. If they had grown up isolated on an island without the context of all the things that they've learned in order to survive in this world, would that same reaction have occurred? I don't know, but I wish what had happened is somebody was around that six-year-old to sit them down and to weep with them and to tell them how to grieve and to walk them through the grief. And if you look at our wisest traditions around death, for example, we have rituals to do that. But a lot of those have disappeared in the modern world. You know, within two weeks, somebody's offering you a tranquilizer or an antidepressant. Mm -hmm. I mean, could you be any more anti-life than that? I mean, you, you know, that somehow, you know, pain over... You know, my mother died of just a few years ago and I was by her bedside when I heard that she had taken a turn for the worst with, you know, with her pneumonia. Man, I ran to Southwest. I jumped on that. And I flew to, you know, Phoenix and as fast as I could got there to put my hand on her and to watch her go through those last few hours of her life. And it is intensely painful and precious spiritual. I mean, man, I'd pay thousands and thousands of dollars to be there. Wouldn't you? And so yeah. the mind is not wise. It's great for what it's great at. So if we 
could go back to that six-year-old and hold her hand and look her into the eyes and tell her it hurts and that you know what your mama would want from you is to learn how to live and to move forward and you will be with her later on in heaven if she comes out of a faith tradition i would say that but not have a turn on her that her only way to be happy is to leave the world by her own hand you know most if you look at the suicide notes of people, 65% of them say, when I'm dead, I won't hurt. Or they say, and they'll regret it. You know, so it's either, you know, I'm going to show somebody what harm they did, or, you know, when I leave here, I'll feel better. And maybe that's true, but it does have the small side effect. Uh, you're dead. And so... Can we find a way to rein in this tool so that it doesn't have us do these kind of anti-life things? Because it's not just suicide. Although our, our young people, as mentioned, if we're not little baby Buddhists, we, we've got a problem here because over the last 30 years, there's been a standard deviation, more anxiety, stress, substance abuse, depression in young people. But it's also suicide rates. So it's not just self-report. It's not that we're just talking about it a lot now. No, this is a harsher world amidst all the plenty of this world. It's harsher in part because of this. Mm -hmm. That Instagram post is harsh because you look at the outsides of other people and say, wow. And then you look at your inside and say, I hope they don't know. They'll never want me. We were just having this conversation on Sunday. I know, I know. And I think I've been off Instagram basically for the last two weeks and it's been kind of great. But I can't tell my clients that. Um, you made a really interesting point about the the difference with grief and being able to process it. And it just, it just struck me with a, a friend that I had that um, went through a, a long fight with cancer and her husband was with her the whole time. Um, and it's, it's devastating. It's devastating. But he, he had to go through that whole process with her. And after she died, within probably a year, he got remarried. And people are like, well, how could he do that? Well, it's like you said, he had that process kind of forced on him to start grieving already mm. and force himself to go through that as opposed to being at the end and, and not having that opportunity to, to like bury it away. He, he was forced to kind of go through it. Mm. Yeah, healthy grieving, uh, if you go through it, it does speed things up. I mean, you don't necessarily have to take the one or two years off if you can walk through it. Be careful, of course, of rebounds. We all know that. But, uh, and it's not just, uh, you know, healthy grieving from a person behind it. End of life issues are the same kind of thing. We've done a lot of work in hospice care and things like that. And that's a phase of life. That's life. That's not. We turn our way and say, oh, the person's dying. No, the person's alive, dying. And we're all going to get there. Mm -hmm. You know, if we live long enough, we all get old. I can, I can promise you that as a person who's, done, who's deep into that process at age 72. But that phase of life asks you to do something as well, of showing up to changes in roles, of showing up to loss of functions of showing up to friends disappearing and showing up to just the the 
the transitions you go through, and then what are your values? What do you really want to put into that process? So healthy grieving is not just tears. It's noticing your emotions and thoughts, but coming into the present and appreciating and carrying forward what it is that you're grieving about, the essence of it. Like, for example, uh, with I was uh, talking about the death of my mother, of really walking into what does she stand for in my life? What do I want to put into my life that would dignify what she put into mine? And those are, health, that's healthy grieving. Healthy grieving is not just, you know, in, if you get a bunch of people together somehow or other on grieving, but it, and you look at what happens, it isn't just tears. You know, they've done research on this with people, persons that have a recent loss. Who's going to have a healthy process going forward? Absence of tears predicts a problem. But here's another one that would shock you, I think. Absence of laughter predicts a problem. Absence of appreciation predicts a problem. Now go back to a healthy kind of family grieving and they're weeping at one moment and then they're telling the funny stories about how dad got up on the, the top of the car with a funny hat on and did it at the party and, and we're all laughing. And then, you know, 30 seconds later, we're talking about what we appreciate what we'll miss, and then we're crying again. It's the whole of it. And so the mind doesn't know how to be present, take on board your history, come into the situation you're in, and now to focus on what's important and get your behavior linked to it. But what I just said are the psychological flexibility processes, that taking on, showing up, looking forward, and getting moving, that whole package is what predicts who's gonna have a healthy divorce that then can lead to positive relationships. Who's gonna have positive relationships in the first place? Who can start a business and who can keep it running? Who's gonna lose weight? Who's gonna become depressed? And it's the smallest set of things that do the most things in the most areas. So um, it's not a bad idea to learn them. Is that what you mean by the pain of absence? And, of, and avoidance leading to the pain of absence? Is that what you meant by that? Well, the pain of presence is the ones we know about. But when you get into the struggle with things that, by pain of presence, I mean painful things that show up as painful. Yeah, but if you mishandle that, then you get this, the pain of what's not there. And it's even worse. It's bigger, but it's harder to see. It's more stultifying. So... Here's what I mean by that. Let's say you decided that it's, let me give an example. You said you have relationship issues and, and divorce. Let me give an example from that. If you've been betrayed in love, what does your mind say to do? I'm going to give you a sentence, fill, finish the sentence. I will never be so. After a betrayal, I will never be so again. I will never be so trusting. Yeah, there you go. Anything else? Vulnerable, Beguiled. maybe? Beguiled. Innocent. Okay. Stupid. So trust. <laughs> Stupid. <I'm> just going <laughs> hard. <laughs> but, you know, inside that formula is 
I'm going to be on my guard. I'm going to be a little closed off. I'm not going to be so open and innocent. Okay, I get you want to learn. You know, it's not white picket fences and guys on horseback. I guess the I get that you want to learn, learn that it's not how you thought it was. But what your mind's telling you to do is wall off the very emotions and connections that you yearn for in the first place. So you, your mind's telling you, it's, it's, it would, no matter how you use it, it's like if you're thirsty and you have a glass of water and you drop it and you say, that's it, no more liquids for me. <laughs> you, you know, and look, you can see it because when a person gets, begins to get under your skin and, and you're back in the dating game and they've somehow got beyond the defenses and you find yourself starting a fight for no reason, not answering a phone for no reason, suddenly getting interested in somebody else you're not even interested in. Have you not caught yourself doing that as you come back into relationships after you've really been deeply betrayed? You know, you where there's a yearning to detune it. Ask Lisa that. Did you ever go through that early on in the relationship? <laughs> Did you avoid my calls intentionally? Maybe. No, I was going through a 30-year-old marriage that was dying. So, yeah, no. Can you catch a little hand held up, you know, like a little bit, just a little bit? A little <laughs> bit of distrust in there right at a moment that, wait a minute, that dude's not done anything distrustful. But look at this face. <laughs> yeah, there my when we, that was when we were in Canada. You did that, and we came back from Canada, and you're like, I just, just I can't do this. And no, that was because I'm like, this is, can I say a shit show right now? I need to get like through to the other side before I can drag anyone into this because it was bad. I I totally get what you're saying though, because and I'm not throwing my mom under the bus, but she had a pretty horrific divorce like mother like daughter <laughs> happen and she made the decision to just you know categorize that all men are horrible there you and, go you know and that bitterness like she was younger than i am right now she was she was like in her mid to late 40s that's a whole lot of life left and she'll say you know i'm there really, you go I'm, I'm lonely but you know you would have to you have to get out there and make that step again so what's so there, there's that there's that pain of absence the pain of presence the things that led you to get that divorce but then there's the pain of absence the thing that's not there that's inside the subtraction that you've done like the dullness the loneliness the emptiness the lack of vitality the bitterness the you know like the hook went through you before you put that guy on the hook and if you don't sort of let that go, you can't slide off that hook. You're like, look at me, I'm the proof, you know, men aren't trustworthy. Okay, well, get what kind of life you're going to have. How much of what her mother experienced and then maybe transposed upon you is, is learned behaviors or am I allowed to say this? Because I married my father. No, but how how much of doc? How much of what her mother experienced? Because you know now we're talking about. I'm going into an epigenetics conversation here for a minute. We're realizing now that a lot of learned behavior becomes cellular DNA restructured, and I'm not yeah, saying that properly. Yeah, it's it epigenetics. It so how much of what she observed from her mother? I'm feeling like I'm under the microscope. You are. Here. 
Put the light. Shit. Turn up the lights. <laughs> How much of what you learned? that Lisa learned from her mother was observed environmental and how much of that was transmutated on a cellular level down to earth? Well, both. I mean, if you, uh, you know, we know that trauma, for example, lives on this sort of uh, up and down regulation of stress related gene systems through epigenetics. And some of that is goes across generations. It does. Mm -hmm. But also we know this, the psychological flexibility uh, process, set of processes I'm talking about, move through families like a social disease. I mean, if you want, we have good data out of COVID right now, for example, you want to predict how children respond to COVID, who's being traumatized by COVID, who's had, had the really things that's going to last in a very traumatic and harmful way. Look at how the parents handle emotions, difficult thoughts, whether or not they can come into the present, focus on their values and get their feet moved moving in according to their values. If they're run away or judge and resent, you know, if your mom gave you lots of judgment, resentment, avoidance, just, you know, that kind of a model, it's penetrated your behavior and you're going to have to undo that in order to be liberated from that training. And you can predict who's going to develop like, um, after a potentially trauma-inducing event, like a school shooting or horrible storms or COVID, you could predict the children who are going to develop trauma by the parents' psychological inflexibility. And so, you know, like uh, like mother, like daughter, unless you do something. But so, we so what does she do? So how does she okay. break that chain? No, so, no, we're not. So we're just my, my chain got broken because it was like a slap in the face and I got pushed off the cliff and I had to make a decision. Not all of us have that opportunity yeah. to just kind of like sit and be like, mm, do I want to change my life? A lot yeah. of times it is that crisis. But you said something before you answer that question, a word that I really love, vitality. Mm -hmm. And depending yeah. on whatever our circumstance, we were talking a lot about divorce and death. It could be your career. It could be anything in your life. You know, you, you process it in the way that you're talking about. And there's vitality on the other side that you hadn't experienced before that, that takes you to another level, isn't there? Yeah, vitality is that place where you're sort of in the flow, you're carrying your history in a way that empowers that journey for your forward. You see what the opportunities are here and you know what's of importance to you and you head towards it. That lifts you up, wakes you up. And whether it's, you know, business or relationships or mental health or dealing with the challenges of physical disease in all areas of life, you're empowered by it. And you know, you know this, actually. Everyone knows this. I mean, I, the way I usually ask it is think of somebody who powerfully empowered you in your life, who lifted you up, carried you forward. You have somebody, a coach, a therapist, a sibling, a friend, teach somebody. It's okay. Go think ahead. of somebody. <laughs> and then here's a quick set of questions. Did you feel accepted for who you really are by this person? Were you constantly being judged or was judgment sort of to the side? When you were together, was the person looking at their watch or were they actually with you in that moment fully? When your eyes met, could you see a conscious person who's conscious of you as a conscious person? You were connected in consciousness in that moment. Did what you care about matter to that person or would they ride over your values without a second thought? And could you be in the situation taking advantage of the behavioral opportunities or was it always one way, always rigid and always up to the other person? 
And those six things are the six psychological flexibility processes. Emotional openness, letting go of judgment, showing up in the present moment consciously, focusing on your values and linking your behavior to it. You got lifted up because that person modeled psychological flexibility for you. You didn't have that term. You didn't know those elements. But you intuitively sensed and you wake up in those interactions. You are more vital in that and you're more empowered because you wake up to the opportunities that are around you when that's the mindset. You take any one of those six out, you're diminishing it. You take them all of them out and you're in trouble. And you're headed towards, we now have 10,000 people followed over five and 10 years with really good regular measures of how they're doing with mental and behavioral health with these psychological flexibility concepts measured, and we can predict. You don't have depression, you don't have anxiety, I, we can predict you're gonna develop it. You have one of those problems, we predict you can develop two. We can predict whether or not you're gonna be constantly going to the doctor, whether or not you're gonna have those divorces. I mean, I don't wanna say oversell it, but it's such a powerful predictor that, you know, take advantage of the places where you're stumbling and if you've had bad models, and a lot of us have, when following that guide blows up on you, come back to this thing you already know. Who uplifted you and what do they model? Start putting that into your life. You've got good models around you. You've got wisdom traditions around you. You've got therapists and science around you. You've got, you know, healthy ideas around you, but you're going to have to work to put it in your life. You can't just sort of sit on the couch and expect it to fall from heaven. It's not going to happen that way. It's great info. Two, two questions. Uh, number one question. I, I have two young daughters, 15 and 12, but let's pretend for a moment that I'm a new okay. parent. How can I change my modeling as a parent? How can I change my behaviors as a parent to make sure that my kids are learning the proper ways to deal with pain, the proper ways to counsel themselves and not have to rely on, assuming they're still having a phone, they still have Instagram, they're still watching sure. TV, even though mine don't. What, what would be some wisdom you could impart on new parents that could help alleviate some of these problems as they grow older? Well, I got a 15 year old, so I'm in there with you and I've got a 51 year old and there are others are spaced in such a way that when Stevie goes to school, to college at age 18, I will have children in the home for 55 straight years. Thank you very much. Wow. That wins the Guinness Book of <laughs> Records. But here's, no empty nesting. <laughs> here's the absolute thing to start with. Start with you. Your kids are watching. They're not just listening. And you can say, blah, 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 blah. And if you're doing something different, they'll learn what you're doing. So start with yourself and your own psychological flexibility. If you really care about your kids and if you love them, learn how to love yourself. Because really the essence of these six things I just said are learning how to love yourself and treating yourself with respect, treating yourself as if you're valid, finding that part of you that isn't the persona, the mask, the cartoon, the clown suit that we put on. That isn't just the, you know, the pretense, but the deeper sense of you, that more spiritual sense of you that knows how to open up to your past, come into the present and focus on the valued future you want to create. If you can learn that kind of flexibility thing, then just in the way I said, who empowers you? 
your kids will start being empowered by you. They will see how you handle difficult moments, difficult thoughts, challenges. And if you get in there and say, you don't know how to handle your challenges in life. <laughs> what you're modeling is the absolute poison toxicity that you probably inherited from your parents that will make it harder for your loved one, for that child to actually learn how to handle those moments. That's a really, there's, that's there's a, nothing as effective as a good backhander when I was a kid. That's right. That, that's a really good point. Cause Lisa and I, we always joke about this. Both of our dads would always, my mom or your mom said it's it. my mom. Both of our parents. My dad was a very conditional, um, very abusive, very, um, psychopath was, <laughs> wow. was all, he was very common of saying to me, do as I say, not as I do. Yes. And I, I was always thinking, you're my dad. I'm I'm modeling your behavior by everything you do. So you should it should be do as you do, not as I don't say. And, and, and I never understood. I never understood why he would say that. And it's funny because I recognize, and I'm going somewhere with this. I recognize that for the first half of my life as a parent, and I'm guilty of this. I, I'm acknowledging this that I I sort of modeled some of the behaviors that my dad did as a father for me, where it was more of a conditional threat based paradigm. And it wasn't until I got divorced that I started realizing that a lot of the behaviors that my divorce was was made possible wasn't just my ex wife's fault. I, I had a play in that as well. And then that bubbled into, well, what does my parenting look like? And I started really questioning how I had raised my kids up into that point because I started seeing some of my behaviors and some of my things manifesting in them. And it wasn't until I realized that parenting isn't about conditional threats and making you do things. It's about teaching the children to become independent, be able to make cognitive decisions on their own, have security about themselves, loving themselves, and just me being there as needed and they knowing that I was there as support when they needed me. And, and I love what you just said there because one of the things that we talk about a lot is that people sort of start to become aligned with their problems. It becomes part of their personal identity. And if they don't have those problems, then they have nothing to align themselves with. They have no identity and no purpose anymore. And so the fact that this is one of the reasons I love reading your book is that you teach people how to restructure their beliefs and, and restructure their language and restructure their paradigm and how they observe and how they, how they enact and how they react to things, right? It's an it's a interesting thought process. Yeah, and I think what you said too, like you said, having a part in your marriage or, you know, a play in it. We have a part in everything in our life, whether we, you know, are the instigator or something, whether we just don't say anything about it, we're still to blame. If we sit there submissive and don't do anything about it, we still have a part in it. And I think exactly what you said about having these labels too, you know, I had so many labels on me and you just kind of use that as a, um, I don't want to get into religion or anything, but, you know, I was like, oh, I was a Mormon and people would signify either either good things or being in a cult <laughs> but it was still a label right you know you go with that label and you you label yourself as a mormon or you label yourself as divorced or whatever and yeah we really that. put that whole process on steroids and we bought into biomedicalizing suffering giving it labels five out of nines four out of seven signs and symptoms shove it in the cubby hole it's mostly nonsense it's not sound science it's and it has this toxic effect of i have and then here's the list of all the things you have and you know you one thing you said about there we were you know we have a role you, you used the word blame i'd put that aside i'd say responsibility 
the joyful message of responsibility is you have the ability to respond. You know, originally that was two words, response, ability. And it, you have the ability to respond. You have a choice here. You're not a victim. And so, yeah, if you manage life in a particular way, things show up that you can put a categorical label on. But what are the steps that you took to lead to that? And what are the steps you can take that will lead you towards what it is that you would like to put into your life? That's exactly what I'm trying to put out here, that some, there's Western science has has gone into the wisdom traditions, the spiritual traditions, the deeper clinical traditions, and abstracted a very small number of things that you need to learn. You need to learn more emotional openness, to step back from the mind and notice that it's working and not get entangled with it, take what's useful, leave the rest, show up to the present moment in a way where your attention can be flexible, fluid, and voluntary, broadening or narrowing, shifting or staying, depending on what's of importance here and do that from this deeper sense of self, this part of you that's behind your eyes that connects you in consciousness to others. And then once you're there, those are the four mindfulness things. What are the qualities of being and doing that you wanna see reflected in your behavior? What is the journey you're on? Who do you wanna be? Who's your best self? And this is not just your goals. Your goals you have and they're like objects that you can have. Your values are things that keep moving you forward like a lighthouse in the distance. And then put your energy into behavioral skills that take you in that direction, slipping and falling, but standing up and moving forward, going in the wrong direction, noticing you are coming back. It's not a you know a simple linear journey. Life's not like that. Curveballs come, try, you know, challenges show up. So you know, if we, if we can focus on the ability to respond, because I, I would ask you this, did anything I just say sound like something that you couldn't do, you couldn't learn, that isn't up to you? There are all things you can learn that are up to you. You're, it's not up to you whether or not you had an abusive dad. That's not your responsibility. But you, it is your responsibility as to what you do with that conditioning or programming when those emotions show up, when those impulses show up, when you want to yell at your kids and treat them like you were treated. You have a choice there. And if you dig down to where the choice points are, keep making healthy choices that are informed by these six healthy processes that are in our mindfulness traditions, wisdom traditions, psychotherapy traditions, life will open up for you. And, you know, that's... Uh, that's that little, that's what I meant by that baby Buddha thing. We're in a modern world that we didn't evolve to be in, where we have constant exposure to pain, judgment, and comparison, constant, constant. And we're giving our kids Instagram posts and likes and beer commercials. And, you know, you can be a YouTube in influencer and make a whole lot of money really fast. I mean, we've got bullshit in our culture and we're trying to give that to our children to eat. I mean, it's like, well, that's not going to lift. I'm sorry for the crude metaphor, but you know, you know what I, what I'm, we've got What's to the do purpose? a better job. What's the purpose of all that? What, why, why? Because this certainly isn't original knowledge. You've, you've condensed it down and taken a, a unique approach yeah. on it, but you know, 
the original scriptures, the Gnostic chapters, the original Tao Te Ching, the Buddhist literature, the Indian literature going back 15,000 years, all yeah. of the, the Gnostic articles that you find, Stoicism, Marcus Aurelius, Epictetus, they all say the same thing. Basically, I'm not saying you're parroting, no, but they all say the same. <laughs> Careful, that yeah, sounds yeah. a little no, no, insulting. No, 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 no. I'm going somewhere. They all say the same thing on sort of the principles of life, how to live your best life, right? Why has Western science and Western medicine and primarily Western, why have they taken all that and bastardized it and, and sort of just giving us a small cliff note version of it that doesn't necessarily represent the full truth and the whole truth, but just parts of it so that they can make us fall into some sort of a regimented program that is dependent upon another system? Why, why, have, we, why, have, why have we bastardized everything? Yeah, that, that's an that's a interesting conversation. And here, here's one thing, here's one thing that uh, I'm getting really sensitive to. It takes a little bit of a rant, but so, uh, let's see if it, I can do it in a way that lands well. Did you know that the word normal wasn't in the English language till the, about the Civil War? Hmm. Normal. You just go do a little engram, you know, Google engram on yeah. normal, typical, average, etc. What happened is... Western science got this concept of the collective, the average, in the world of behavior and disease and so forth, and they put it atop people. Here's the problem. Another wing of Western science, the physicist, showed in the 30s that the behavior of a collective doesn't predict the behavior of elements. They were trying to figure out how gas molecules work. They couldn't measure it. So they said, we'll just measure the volume of a gas. And then they figured out, no, that's not going to work. And, and, and why? Well, here's what's happened. There's a dark history to these ideas of average and these, oh, you've got this disorder and you've got that. If you go to your pediatrician, oh, your child isn't uh, meeting the developmental milestones, all based on averages. The dark history is, do you know that almost all the statisticians that developed that came out of eugenicists departments? R.A. Fisher, Carl, professors of eugenics, they were trying to sort people into the good ones and the bad ones. Why? So that we wouldn't let the bad ones breed. You have to understand how dark the history is behind some of these concepts inside the biomedicalization of suffering. It was about sorting human beings and not allowing certain ones and literally sterilizing them involuntarily. I mean, it's a horrifying history that's almost not understood. Well, now here we are in this moment where even things like gender are breaking down. You got to find out, you know, you want to be called they or he. I mean, we, you know, have it your way is now what's happening. I think it's progressive. I think it's positive, but it requires a change in our thinking. And so how we've messed it up, by saying what you have, these are normative concepts. I, let me give you an example that I just used in terms of your pediatrician. You go to your pediatrician, you say, my 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 baby's not, uh, how is my baby doing? And they say, well, has he, he, he taken his first step yet? I say, no, he hasn't taken his first step. He scoots around on his diaper. And he goes, oh, he's six months beyond the developmental milestone. That's based on an average. Do you know that there's 16 different reliable pathways to lead to walking? 
And here's one that you probably don't know exists. It's up two or three, four percent of the kids do it. They scoot on their diapered butt until their legs get really strong. They go faster and faster and faster, and then they stand up and walk. Hmm. That's an empirical fact. But you bring your toddler to the peed, and they're saying, oh, you don't meet the developmental milestones. You've got to do something wrong with your kid. So we are so far away from the kind of knowledge. Let me let make this land. For you as a person, you want to know how to develop your life. That means you need to know the processes that lift up people over time. That requires a different conceptual system. It would be like if I'm standing on this side of a building and I want to know how to go to the other side. And you could say, well, you could go around the left, you go around the right, you go through the first floor, down to the basement, or up over the fire escape. Those are the th three different ways. Okay, I locked the door on the first floor. What is the average going to tell you to do? Hmm. You People go around the left, they go to the right, they go down to the basement, or they go over the fire escape. It's going to say walk through the the front floor, and you're going to bang your face into the locked door if you do that. That's what Western science has done is in the interests initially, I got to say, of this eugenic idea of sorting, and then quickly forward assembly lines, management science, how can, what is the average number of seconds it takes to put on that screw where we had to fit people to the work instead of work to people? And we are living inside a world now where all that's breaking down, where you know what's going on around the world. And our minds are just reeling out against it. We don't know what to do. We feel lost. These categories don't apply anymore. Well, good damn riddance. They're wrong anyway. But let's focus on what will bring us forward as individuals. And so personalized medicine, personalized uh, uplifting psychologically, no more cubby holes with five out of nines and four out of sevens. You got me into a rant, but uh, Western science has just balled it up with the wrong categorical scheme and it's learning. I mean, if you get a cancer diagnosis, you don't want to just know the diagnosis. You want to know what about my genome? What about my epigenome? What, what would be best in terms of all the different options for me? Mm -hmm. That's a different kind of science, and it, it's a it's where we're going, and we're going to get there. But we've got some painful times. Meanwhile, for people wanting just to make this abstract rant land in your life, focus on the processes that will carry you forward, and let go of the big categories that you put on yourself, like a you know, like a bad suit. Yeah. I love that piece. The, the takeaway I got from that is that, you know, how you learn to walk versus how I learn to walk. It's a process for each of us and, and, and subjective. How I, if I scroll, crawl, crawl you, on my you butt. You strut a lot more than I do. Yeah. And you, you <laughs> but everything that we do, whether it's how we recover, how we deal with pain, how we deal with misery, how we deal with success, all of us have our own unique way of handling it. And mm -hmm. to, to say that there's one prescription for me that will also work for you as a fallacy. So I've enjoyed this conversation. Um, we're running out of time. So I'd like to close with this. You talk, we didn't even get into it. I know. You, you talk a lot this. about, you talk a lot about some of the takeaways was incorporating mindfulness and acceptance and, and sort of paving the way, um, living a value driven life. If as adults right now, giving the current state of affairs, economically, politically, globally, what, what are some of the things that we can do as a practicing living adults to identify our value stream, 
start living a more fulfilled life, embracing pain and misery as part of the process, and meditation. What, what are some of those things that we can really just jump into right now to help ourselves get on the right track? Well, I, I would look at what's going on with the mindfulness work and trying to put it into, you know, a living mindfulness sort of moment by moment, not just, you know, 10 day silent retreats. That's all fine. Uh, but be careful of selfish mindfulness. Be careful what the West has done with it in the traditions from which this core of mindfulness, which is really about emotional openness, notice being able to notice your thoughts, feelings, memories, bodily sensations, with equanimity to come into the present moment consciously. Those, that's really what the training is about. You can work on that in little micro skills. You mentioned get out of your mind into your life. Thank you for the mention. Uh, and uh, a liberated mind is over my shoulder, but I'm not the only one. There's a lot of folks writing out of this who try to break it down to the elements that you can use. Uh, some of the things that are elements are in there are kind of fun and, and they're they're new. If you uh, Google uh, me for TED, you'll find two TEDx talks. And one of the TEDx talks I gave was on the fun things you can do to rein in the mind. For example, take the places where your mind just overwhelms you and with, you know, telling you what to do. And you know, it's old, you know, if I do that yet again, it's going to produce the same outcomes, but it's what your mind's telling you to do. We, we can do things that will help that kind of put that spirit of mindfulness in our moments. Like, for example, give your mind a name. Say, what do you have to say about this, George? That happens to be my mind's name, which gives you a little bit of separation. Sing the difficult thoughts. If you're thinking, I, I'm a loser, sing, I'm a loser. Just sing it. See what happens. Say it in the voice of Wait, Donald Duck. Repeat number two again, because you, you got it broke up. Say the number two bullet again. Sing, sing your, your thoughts. Literally put the difficult thoughts that dominate to music. Happy birthday, if you can't think of anything else. You know, like, no one will ever love me again. Just sing it. No one will ever love me again. No, nothing like that. That little separation creates a little bit of freedom where you can be responsible. There's an ability now to respond. Uh, I, say it in a funny voice. Or if you want to get to the core of it, picture yourself when you were little and you first had a thought like that and say it in the voice of yourself at that age, picturing those same words out of your the mouth of yourself as a young person. And you'll find the compassion there. You've got programming. Okay, we've got thoughts. As far as the values piece, my quickest way to get to values uh, you know, you can take pain and flip it over and it tells you what you care about. You can take your joyful moments and unpack it and it'll tell you what, where vitality lies. But in the spirit of what we were talking about earlier, think of somebody who you would pick as a guide for this moment where you need some guidance. And just allow your mind to settle on somebody that you know. Don't overthink it. Just gut, gut it. And then take a little time to actually write about what did that person stand for? Why are they of importance to you? Why are they a hero to you? Why are they a guide? And my question is, how could you put those qualities that you just wrote about into your actions right now? And you know, you have good guides around you. And it's probably not you at your worst. It's you more at your best. And so 
taking those mindfulness skills to come here and then take that wisdom that comes from just watching how life works, pick a hero and be, be allowed yourself to be guided. Uh, if you're not sure how, uh, just imitate it. I like it. You know, if, if you're lifted up by, you know, a kind teacher who attended to you and you're not sure how to be a good parent in that moment, and what occurs to you is the model of the bad parents that you had. Take that other guide, get in there, open the door to your 15-year-old and see what the interaction would look like if you bring kindness and attention and values into that moment without the overlay of criticism and judgment and threats and negativity. Yeah. So... Uh, there That's are great. tools there to, to, that can be learned. And if anything in here resonates, uh, you know, people want to follow my work, they can go to stephenchayes.com and I'll send them a little mini course on it. I don't spam people. But, and I'm, and there's lots of free voices out there and lots of act voices out there. So it doesn't have to be me. But do check out the work on acceptance and commitment therapy. I think you'll find something that lifts you up in these areas. That's great. Doctor, I appreciate your time. Again, if you want more information from Dr. Hayes, you can find him on Dr. Stephen, StephenHayes.com. That's H-A-Y. Stephen C. Hayes. I use my, my dad's name is Charlie, so Stephen C. There is actually Stephen Hayes who was a mass murderer in Massachusetts. You know that guy who attacked? Anyway, he did. He did. And, and for one horrible week, my picture was there in news stories as a mass murderer. It actually happened to me. So Stephen Hayes is not my favorite. You need to do a dis people. you need to do the disappearing mug on us right now so people don't hear that reference and just went away. <laughs> so I read your book, Get Out of Your Mind and Into Your Life. I highly recommend it. It's been a fantastic read for me, which is what brought you on the show in the first place. Um, so thank you for your time today. I really appreciated you. Uh, by the way, can I say Stephen Hayes there with a PhD? If it's actually up there, it's Stephen with a V. So they won't find me if it's PH. Stephen with a V. <laughs> Stephen and Charlie and Hayes. So well, when, when, don't, when don't Stephanie the uh, label underneath my face <laughs> when stephanie <laughs> renders this she'll put all those references on the website so great all right doctor thank you i appreciate your time have Take a great care. day be well you as well bye all right that was a good show um, i didn't get to touch on it. I, I i made some notes over here i only got to ask a few of the questions i wanted to what was your biggest takeaway from that it's it's up to us isn't it we need to be present and we need to take action yeah I think my biggest takeaway and, I, and whether we wanted to stagnate in our life and, and not go anywhere and be sad and uh, you may, we want vitality. I like that word, by the way. Um, I wasn't calling him a copycat. You understand that reference, right? Even though you try to throw me under the bus. <laughs> I appreciate that. That's what I'm here for. That's why you have to listen. Let me finish. I know okay. it takes a while to get there, but it was getting somewhere. Um, I think my biggest takeaway was. <clears throat> number one, detach from your thoughts because your thoughts are just projections based upon a prior experience or the context of, of who you are and what you think you are. And most of the time, that's not even true. You mm -hmm. and I both know mm -hmm. that really well. Mm -hmm. um, get better at accepting our unwanted emotions mm -hmm. and sort of understanding that the things that the things that we don't like, the things that we don't prefer, instead of just trying to prescribe a medicine to, to shove it under the rug for a little while, embrace it and look at the lessons. I love how he said, how can you take a, a dire situation and analyze that and to see what, what opportunities can come from it? How can you improve upon that? How can you change that, that paradigm a little mm -hmm. bit? And then I think um, this is an exercise for everybody, and we do this with all of our clients, but 
having more clarity around our value disposition is a huge exercise. I started doing this with my kids, by the way, we did that really? value exercise okay, cool. um, just to sort of understand what matters to us and that, what, what is it we want out of our lives? And then how do we, how do we step into that space of who our truest potential really is? Can I just say as well, it's just not, it's not always easy. And I think a lot of times we look for the easy things and we're really great at staying busy and avoiding things. But I know when I was going through something specifically, you said you, you need to get to the other side. Like there's no quick way about it. You just need to get through it. And as you get through it and you process it, you realize that you've you've learned, you've grown, you've become uh, another level of, of who you are supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And it just adds adds on to your, your happiness and your integrity and all the other things. Yeah, you're absolutely right. He said something very interesting, and we hear a lot of people who are much more learned and educated than we are say the same thing, is that, you know, he referenced Instagram multiple times. Mm-hmm. But he's right. You know, if you stop and think about the society we live in today, we live in this instant gratification nation where we're just constantly, we have everything at our fingertips. No matter what it is, it's right here at our fingertips. And and we use that as a, and a comparative analysis to prescribe what our life should look like, not what it really is. Mm-hmm. You and I had this conversation mm-hmm. yesterday. You know, we were at that wedding with all those brilliant people and all uber wealthy and people driving in with Range Rovers and all these Rolls Royces and stuff. And we're like, wait, why am I here? What have I accomplished? Mm-hmm. And and you only have that question because you had the context of somebody else that had something shinier and nicer than, mm-hmm. than you. Their car mm-hmm. was bigger than yours. But we don't know. Everybody's car is bigger than mine. <laughs> yeah. But we don't know what's going on in their real life. You know, they yeah. you know, they could be battling suicide, depression, and and marital affairs, or they could be uh, going through bankruptcy and they're you know, this is all just a show. Mm-hmm. You know, I have a I have a banker friend who who tells me, you know, most of the people that he sees coming in, they're at their wits' end. Like they are they have overextended their lives. And they're mm-hmm. still driving Range Rovers and have these 5,500 5, square foot homes that are basically underwater. And, you know, they put on this front that they have all these things and they're all the, all this and that. But deep down inside, they're failing at life just like a lot so of people So they need are. to do the value lesson. They need to understand what their value is. So, And don't look at other people's lives. Look at what you want from mm-hmm. yours and just do mm-hmm. that stuff. Okay. Good show. Great show. How in the hell do we get these amazing I guests? No, We keep tricking them. I love Fantastic. it. Absolutely brilliant. All right. If you like this show... If you enjoy the conversation, you can find Dr. Stephen C. Hayes.com. Is that right? Just Stephen C. Hayes.com. Stephanie, I'll fix that for me. But if you like the show, give us drop us a couple of comments below. Give us the thumbs up. I know, doctor, we still need the thumbs up. It keeps our show going. That's how we get paid. And we don't get paid. I know, but I'm just gonna put that anyway. <laughs> Thanks for your time. We just need the affirmation.